we look for what I call buck pockets, which are these really um, intense pockets uh, of buck sign. And it can be really hard to find those. Some of those might be miles back in the mountains. Um, and, and so we're trying to find those pockets. And then once we find those pockets, we might use uh, what you would think of as more, you know, traditional techniques. Thanks for listening to episode 10 of Southeast Whitetail. We have online today Dr. Chris Jenkins of the Orient Society. And uh, he's the CEO of that. And he is the host of the Snake Talk podcast. The Orient Society is a nonprofit and they work on conservation efforts uh, to help amphibians and reptiles. Uh, specifically, what they do in the South is a lot of uh, ecosystem work with uh, longleaf savannas. If you're not familiar with, with the longleaf ecosystem, that is what dominated the South uh, before uh, before civilization really blew up in the Southeast and before we really went heavy into uh, landscape fragmentation. And uh, a lot of things changed then. That's when we um, sort of dipped down in our populations with uh, deer, turkey, and quail. And uh, there's a lot of other species that aren't game species and they get you know a lot of times left off the big picture like the gopher tortoise um did a lot of different snakes and dr jenkins is, is, is going to talk about that and i implore everybody to check out his podcast snake talk it's very good i've listened to a number of episodes there's some really cool stuff there that uh, any hunter or outdoors men or woman would enjoy and um Lastly, hope everyone out there is getting is prepping for deer season. We're starting the second week of July. Get some trail cameras out there. Even if you don't get a buck uh, in full growth velvet uh, in about a month or so, um, right now, if you get a buck, you'll be able to tell probably what it's going to look like for the most part. Probably how big the rack's going to be shooter non-shooter it's also an excellent time to run some survey cameras if you want to run the you know the 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 formal you know trail cam survey process that texas a&m implemented or if um if you just want to simply run some trail cameras with some bait some mineral stumps some, some you know some corn whatever might be legal in your state that can tell you a lot about the bucks in your area or What's really important is how many antlerless does, how many antlerless deer you have 
on your property and how, or in, you know, in that immediate area where you're running, run the trail camera and how many you need to, you need to shoot. Cause odds are, if you're listening to this and you're in the Southeast, you don't need to shoot a couple. You probably need to shoot at least double digits, if not more, depending on the size of your property of antlers deer, specifically does. Um, and, uh, I will mention that there are some audio issues with this. Dr. Dr. Jenkins sounds great. He's a professional. My audio, well, if you if if you've listened to this so far, you'll it's no, it's not headline news. I am not a professional. Somehow my audio was being recorded either on my earbuds or my MacBook. It was not recording uh, on this um, microphone that I'm using right now. So but again, you know, you're not listening to this to hear me talk. You're here for these awesome guests that we get. So stick with it. I sound like I'm talking out a hallway. It's not that big of a deal. Stick with it. Uh, Dr. Jenkins sounds great. And again, if you're interested in, in collaborating with me, being on this podcast, you know someone, talk to me. Uh, and um, if you know of anybody that might uh, want to do any kind of collaboration with this podcast, a business or an entity or a person or nonprofit, drop me a line. I, I am open to anything and trying to grow this podcast, the content. So without further ado, let's get to them. Dr. Chris Jenkins. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to episode 10 of Southeast Whitetail. I'm very excited to have on the line today, Dr. Chris Jenkins with the Orient Society. Uh, he's on the line here. He's going, uh, Chris, can you tell us a little bit about, about yourself and what you do? Yeah, well, uh, thanks, Mark. It's good to be here, and uh, I uh, I live here in the southeast, but in in a much different environment than than where you're sitting. I live up in the uh, southern mountains, uh, kind of right where the states of uh, Georgia, North Carolina, and South Carolina come together. So very mountainous uh, terrain, and uh, I, as you mentioned, I'm I'm the my day job is that I'm the CEO of uh, a nonprofit called the Orianne Society, which is a, a wildlife uh, conservation organization that, that primarily focuses on non-game species, in particular reptiles and amphibians. Uh, but I think people would be surprised that a lot of the work we do actually benefits, uh, you know, a lot of uh, game species. And uh, within that, personally, um, I am a, uh, a venomous snake expert, so I work quite a bit with rattlesnakes and other venomous snakes around the world. Um, and then the final piece of that, linking it back to uh, whitetails and, and game species in general, is that um, I do quite a bit of, of hunting and fishing, as we were talking before we started recording here. You know, I, I'm hunting probably 150 to 200 uh, days a year all around uh, the country, sometimes internationally, quite a bit here in the Southeast. <laughs> and then finally, I also work on conservation, uh, not just from that non-game perspective, but also through the hunting and fishing lens, uh, you know, through a variety of organizations. But I'd say the biggest affiliation is that I'm on the uh, North American board for Backcountry Hunters and Anglers, which is a public land uh, conservation organization protecting access for hunters and anglers to all of our beautiful public land. Well, I appreciate the intro. You got a lot going on. That's a lot of that's a lot of time out in the woods hunting. I can appreciate that for sure. Um, 
let's just dive right into what what um can tell us a little bit about your reptile and amphibian conservation work in the south and uh kind of touch on some stuff that maybe landowners or maybe some leasees that you know lease land should be aware of um yeah so i would say uh so first of all the our Orient Society started in the Southeast. So we do work, you know, we've worked, we have a program in the Northeast. We've got projects in the Western part of the country. We also have some international projects, but we definitely, we are based down here. The bulk of our staff are in the Southeast. So we have a long history here. Well, I mean, it's a relatively young organization. We started in 2008, but, but uh, we started again in the Southeast and uh, our organization is, is really focused on rare and endangered reptiles and amphibians. Our work in the Southeast has, has really spanned multiple states, uh, South Carolina, Georgia, Florida, Alabama, uh, but, and North Carolina. But, but I would say that uh, by far we have had and continue to have the largest presence in South Georgia. And I think, again, people would be pretty surprised at some of the work we do. And just to give an example, one of the species that we're really focused on in the Southeast and in Georgia in particular is, is the gopher tortoise, which is this large terrestrial turtle. And we've been working uh, with a, a broad partnership of, of folks uh, to on something we call the Georgia Gopher Tortoise Conservation Initiative. And so over the last, say, five to eight years, Again, the Orient Society, but with many other partners, Georgia DNR, Nature Conservancy, Georgia Forestry Commission, on and on, a long list of partners. We've protected hundreds of thousands of acres of land. And we, not, we haven't protected it to keep hunters off. Almost all yeah. of that are now wildlife management areas that you can go out, hunt, fish, hike, birdwatch. Uh, so uh, my point is, is, is that's a good intersection of my interests in life that you know, conserving this really rare reptile that, uh, you know, and, and in doing that, we're providing access to hunters and anglers, uh, you know, and create more public land in the state of Georgia. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, do y'all do some work with the Longleaf Alliance? We do. We're very, we're very uh, closely aligned with them in particular on the management side. So, yeah. Uh, you know, I know you, you talk a lot about, um, you know, habitat management for whitetails and, and other species and, you know, conservation aspects of that. And so as part of our work for, again, rare reptiles in Georgia, we have our own land management teams. And those teams are out on a daily basis doing a variety of things. I'd say the primary thing is prescribed fire. Mm -hmm. So, so we have our own teams that are, are you know, we're working on public land, you know, so on state wildlife management areas, on private land, you know, partner landowners on our own land. Uh, we do long leaf pine planting. We do ground cover restoration. So native uh, grasses and forbs uh, and the Longleaf Alliance uh, works with us in, in partnership, uh, kind of in the Altamaha River drainage in South Georgia. And, and we work there to steward and restore habitats. That's a lot, that's a lot going on. Um, as far as, uh, we've already mentioned prescribed fire. It is, does the timing when you're doing Let's, you know, work with, let's say in South Georgia, 
in you know historical long leaf ecosystems um is the timing of fire about the same that you're looking for um i mean i know primarily when people burn it's gonna be in the dormant season there's definitely a lot more content out there um mostly by biologists in different universities showcasing you know the, the benefits of burning right now you know as I mean we're right now at the peak we're about the peak of the lactation demands uh for mother does right now and and about the peak of the demands on an annual basis for whitetails just talk about them for instance right now in the summer and how burning you know the summer uh can give some good you know succulent growth that they like palatable tender as opposed to what we burned back in february or march there's some there but a lot of those plants are already growing growing up is there is it about this i mean would you advocate the same type fire management if you're looking for someone to restore you know natural native ecosystems well so first of all don't get me wrong i love a good fire I love a fire any time of year is better than no fire. And we certainly, uh, you know, we'll do dormant season burns. We'll do, you know, we'll, we'll burn year round conditions permitting, but um, we do. So we have like our base staff that work on the land management team, but then we ramp those staff up by bringing on seasonal technicians. And we basically do that from, you know, the beginning of the year in January. And then right about now, actually the end of this week, those seasonal staffs um, roll off, which what that's telling you is that we ramp up and we do the majority of our prescribed fire in the growing season or growing season burns. And there, you know, there's issues there, obviously there's, it, you know, the reason people burn in the dormant season, it's a lot easier to control a fire, but there is um, an incredible amount of evidence that you know, how these ecosystems and how these landscapes throughout a lot of the Southeast and certainly in the longleaf pine, uh, you know, they used to, you know, uh, growing season fire or spring fire was a really, really important component. And, and as you know, you talked about the benefits to wildlife using, you know, whitetails as an example, but, um, you know, evidence for that, I mean, one of the primary or evidence for that grow the importance of the growing season burn is that there are plants in this ecosystem that are completely adapted to meaning for thousands of years they have they have been adapted to these fires naturally occurring in the spring and you could take one of the most dominant grasses uh, native grasses that you find in the longleaf pine ecosystem being wiregrass and you know wiregrass they're really important. It helps carry fire. But if you burn them in the spring, that following fall, there will be an incredible level of seed production. Whereas if you burn your wire grass, say during the dormant season, there'll be really oftentimes little to no seed production. And so, I mean, that just tells you that um, prehistorically, before people that these plants lived in a system that had spring fire. And so it's a very natural thing. And yes, uh, we, we see the greatest fire effects uh, during the spring and we, we definitely do the bulk of our burning in the spring. But, but again, we'll yeah. burn year round. I love a good yeah. fire. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, I, I've got a sex. We've pretty much we've wrapped up most of our burning, but I have wanted to do a late summer, early fall burn for a number of years. It just usually the timing of it just slips away because our season, our deer season in South Carolina opens so early that uh, we usually, you know, we're have finishing up all of our food plots in, in the sense that already planted, but we're, we have to do so much with our food plots uh, to just get them established so the deer won't over browse them. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're wrapping all that up and, you know, pretty soon we'll next move into, you know, deer stands and getting roads trimmed, shooting lanes, stuff like that. But I've got a section picked out. It's not that big that it's and it's not it needs to be burned it's a little too open um it's not too thick that i'm hoping to burn this late summer early fall i want to try it um kind of a smaller section uh but i think it'd be good it, it's in um some pine trees and loblolly that's about 25 years old it's been thinned twice it's got good uh good canopy exposure and so i like to try it out and do something different yeah, I'd, I would encourage, you know, your audience, if if they're interested, say they've been doing dormant season burns, but they're interested in burning at, you know, some of these more, you know, maybe what they look at as risky times of the year, whether it's kind of growing season or like you're talking about a late summer uh, fall burn that, uh, you know, there's there are a lot of people now in the Southeast that are moving in this direction. There's a lot of expertise. And I think reaching out to them, reaching out to groups like Orianne, uh, you know, nature conservancy in a lot of States, for example, I know in South Carolina, the South Carolina nature conservancy chapter is doing a lot of growing season burns and your state agencies. Most of our state agencies in the Southeast are really starting to focus in more on doing these growing season burns so there's resources out there is what i'm saying if you if you are a little hesitant because of that risk factor there's there's getting to be more and more expertise and you should try to plug into that definitely yeah and in fact there's a a free burn class uh coming up from the university of florida um i saw um they've got one coming up so um to switch gears a little bit, talk about hunting. I know you you said that you were a big turkey hunter. Spent a lot mm-hmm. of days turkey hunting throughout the south and all over. What what we talk a little bit about about the relationship with snakes and turkeys, nests, nest eggs, poles. Um, you know that's it's we talked about before we started recording that of course. Uh, you know, poult survival is a huge conservation issue in the southeast specifically. Uh, Pulse per hen has been on the decline since about 2000. And, um, you know, one of the main reasons, main issues is just habitat loss. Um, And, you know, there's definitely a big, definitely a big move to, you know, trap more raccoons, possums, any kind of, I mean, we have a lot of armadillos in our area, anything that will eat ground nesting eggs. But as far as snakes, I mean, you're, you're not, you're not managing for snakes as far as predators. I mean, how, how much of an issue is snakes really uh, for the turkey population? Yeah, and, and first of all, in many states, like Georgia as an example, um, your egg-eating snakes would actually be illegal to kill. Um, and so, but I would back up and, and my answer, well, so first thing I'll say is yes, 
there are certain snake species that do eat eggs and, you know, or some that may even eat, you know, young poults mm-hmm. and, and, uh, it, but not all snakes, you know, a lot of your say species like that people are probably very familiar with, you know, like rat snakes or some places they're kind of yellowish, some they're gray, some they're black corn snakes, you know, some of your pine snakes, uh, a lot of those snakes will potentially uh, eat eggs. And those, those species also get big enough to eat an egg, you know, like a larger egg like a turkey would have. So definitely snakes are one of the predators on, on turkey eggs. Uh, I would think that, I don't know, I would think that it's actually a relatively low uh, amount of the nest predation as compared to say somebody like your mesocarnivores, you know, things you mentioned like raccoons and other animals like that. Um, but, but my overall answer to this question has more to do with, um, it, it almost be the same way I would answer. We didn't get into it, but you know, some of your listeners may be thinking, Oh, this guy wants to do all the prescribed fire in the spring. You're going to burn up all the Turkey nests. And, and, and yes, fire does burn up some turkey nests. Um, I don't, I'm not trying to deny that. And I'd almost say the same thing with snakes. From my perspective, if I'm managing a landscape and I'm, I'm you know, it's at, it's large enough and I'm, I'm managing it at a scale well with fire and, you know, the appropriate forestry and, and you have this kind of natural functioning landscape then that level of predation of snakes or raccoons or any of these things should be at a relatively natural level um, in that, uh, you know, raccoons as an example, and some snake species as well, do relatively well around people. There's this term that you will consistently hear when we think about turkey conservation, especially given our, you know, the, the state of our declines here in the Southeast, uh, this, this idea of subsidized predation. So it's not just, I mean, raccoons, you know, they're an issue now. They've always been an issue. They've always been a predator of turkey eggs and poults potentially. But the issue is, is that really that they're subsidized, which means that they're subsidized by human activities. They do well around things that we put on the landscape, you know. And and so you get, then you get this idea of hyper predation. Again, I'm I'm focused on raccoons, but uh, the concept is if you have a relatively healthy ecosystem and you don't have all these subsidies for these mesocarnivores, and I would put snakes into that, you would have much more natural levels of these predators and you'd have higher turkey numbers and and it would be much more of a natural balance. Um, And and don't get me wrong, I'm not trying to be all like Pollyanna here. I mean, I have a a big property in in the coastal plain that we manage too. And I know you do need to manage predators at times. But my point being is that one, yes, snakes, some snake species probably eat turkey eggs. I do not think they're the biggest um, predator. And I, I, and in most places, it would be illegal to manage the snakes by killing them. And so uh, the best way to manage that is to manage the whole system with things such as fire and try to yeah. get more of a natural balance. Yeah, that, that's, I mean, 
if you if you listen to to biologists, land managers, and people that are really in the know and that are you know have degrees in wildlife management, people that know a lot more than me, the best defense is is to create and maintain the better habitat. I mean, you know, you can trap you can trap fur bears all year long, raccoons, possums, but you know, if everyone in the neighborhood is not doing it consistently year-round, there, there's going to be more that migrate on. I mean, and, and not not to mention coyotes. I mean, that's that. I think there's a lot of misinformation out there on coyotes, but as far as raccoons, possums, but anyways, it, it's it's you know, it, you know, whether you're trying to build your turkey population up or maybe. Uh, better your, you know, fawn recruitment. It's about habitat, you know, have, mm-hmm. have you give, figure out what the species needs and give it to them. And you can trap, we trap too, but I think a lot of people look for, you know, that silver bullet or they're looking to blame something and they'll go after it. You know, the, the coyote gets a lot of blame, in my opinion, uh, for people not, you know, shooting 180 inch buck. They got to blame somebody and this coyote, the coyote's killing, you know, all the deer. So I think it's a good way of putting it. I mean, I, you know, you hear about snakes being a predator, but I mean, what's not a predator for a ground nesting bird? Mm-hmm. I mean, yep. quail, quail eggs, turkey eggs. I mean, what, I mean, you, you know, whether someone has pigs, armadillos, raccoons, possums, I mean, wild dogs, I mean, there there is, I mean, we we have a lot of wild dogs in our, in our area. Um, So a a good one way with the snakes, let's just take rat snakes, for example, and to give you that idea of like how you would think of like subsidized predation with snakes. So let's just say you have a property and you have a barn there. And so you have elevated rodents and then you have fields of whatever type. Again, we have fields too. I'm not saying you shouldn't. I'm just trying to give you an idea of how this would function. And then you have, uh, then you have a bunch of bluebird boxes, which we also have, but you know, you like to see the bluebirds. So then you've got this landscape where you've provided all this extra food for the rat snakes. And then what happens is your rat snake numbers go up. And so there are more rat snakes on the landscape that could then feed on your turkey eggs or whatever it might be. So that's the whole concept of subsidized predation. And uh, that is an example of how a, in this example, a rat snake population could be subsidized and you could get hyper predation on yeah. ground nesting bird nests. I, there's two things that, that I, I thought about. What, what, Hearing you say just explain just that, I've heard that on um, it was one of the bio, one of the university biology podcasts of listen to, and I'm not sure which one, but they were talking about feeders, whether it's a corn feeder or a supplemental protein feeder, uh, any type of you know feeding supplemental feeding system, which is primarily going to be for deer, what that draws in, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, if it's corn, I mean, even as protein pellets, you won't get as many various varmints eating it, but you will. And, and you know, I mean, I, there's definitely a core, there's got to be a correlation between feeders and then yeah. attracting in more raccoons and possums and maybe rats rodents and and snakes yeah yeah again i'm not trying to be negative i'm not saying don't feed i mean you know we put out feed for animals at times in places i'm not trying to be negative about it i'm just trying to help people understand how 
the concept of, of predation work. So when we do those things, you need to expect more predators on the landscape. So maybe you would need to ramp up your predator program yeah. along with your, um, you know, along with your feeding. But of course, you know, it, well, in certain states like Georgia, you can't, the snakes aren't part of that. You can't legally kill the snakes. So um, yeah, it, like you could with say the raccoons or the possums. So when you brought that up, now that was our second question I want to get to. What, uh, what can you legally kill as far as- In state? Georgia? In Georgia, because uh, I don't think a lot of people know. I think a lot of people, and I know you know this being in the snake world, but- Yeah, it varies state by state. And I don't know every state off the top of my head, but I will say in Georgia, it is um, illegal- to take or kill any of the non-venomous species. However, there is an exception in Georgia law where you can do anything you want with any of the venomous species, unless there is like a federal overriding law of some type. And we don't have that with any of our species. Probably the one that's closest to that would be the Eastern Dimeback Rattlesnake. Um, the Fish and Wildlife Service right now is reviewing it for endangered species status. We're helping them with that, meaning helping them provide the data. Right now in Georgia, it is, it is legal to kill any native venomous snake and illegal to kill any non-native snake. And so we have six venomous snakes in the state of Georgia and throughout the Southeast, you know, like South Carolina would also have six, for example. And so we have six venomous snakes and we have, uh, depending how you look at it, you know, let's just say 43, 44 snake species. So let's just say 38 of the snake species in Georgia are technically legal to kill. And then there's six that are legal to kill. Well, that's interesting. I didn't know we had that many uh, species. Um, I was listening to one of your podcasts about snake avoidance with dogs, hunting dogs in particular. I found that one interesting, um, which a lot of your episodes that I've listened to, I have like, what, what, um, well, in your opinion, because I because you've always had bird dogs, right? Yes, I, I do you have say, bird dogs. Uh, German wire hair. Yeah, Ger- I have German wire hair. So I'm about ready to switch breeds, but I've always had hunting dogs. Yes. Can we talk a little bit about, about uh, hunting dogs and snakes? Because I know a lot of people out there, most people probably have dogs, might be a lab they hunt with, or maybe a bird dog. Um, I know some, I mean, some people, I mean, what, what, what are your, what, in your opinion, what's more of the effective methods of training the dog around snakes? And then is there some protocol you think that some, you know, hunters should know when they're out in the field with their dog? I mean, quite frankly, I, I've got a dog first aid little booklet here around my desk somewhere. And I had a first aid kit, but if something were to happen, out in the field it's going to happen and i'm not going to see it i'm not going to see it come 
And I don't think many hunters are going to see it coming and then it's going to happen or they're going to see it or maybe they, maybe they don't see it. Maybe they don't yeah. see the dog get bit to hear something, but we talked a little bit about what, what hunters should know, what they should look for training, anything mm-hmm. like that. Definitely. And, you know, I can speak not just from knowing the snake side, but again, I've, I've been, you know, owned and trained and run bird dogs for, for many years. Um, and I've had one of my bird dogs get a venomous snake bite. So, so I can come at this question from a a lot of angles. The first thing I'd say, well, I'd say to you is you need to just throw out that first aid kit for your dog. Well, I mean, I don't want to say throw it out, but if it's a snake bite kit, um, it's very similar to, to human snake bite. Like, your your snake bite kit should be a set of car keys and a, cel- uh, a cell phone and and what that's you know that's kind of tongue-in-cheek for like transportation yeah. and communication and i actually have a great podcast episode on that as well by dr spencer green who's one of the top uh snake bite doctors in the country and so I should also mention that the podcast that we're referencing is, is a podcast that I host called Snake Talk. You can find it on you know any Spotify, Apple Podcasts. You can find it on Orient Society's website. Uh, and we do have an episode. I can't remember it right off the top of my head, but we have an episode on snake aversion training for your dog. And we do have the episode I mentioned with Dr. Green uh, on, on treating snake bite in humans. And, uh, but with dogs, it would, it would be kind of the same. So to start off answering your question, I don't have any like quantifiable data on this, but I will say that in general, dogs do better with snake bites, um, than people. And I'm saying that there's, there's a fair amount of speculation there. So, but in general, it seems that dogs do relatively well with snake bites, certainly dogs can get killed by snakes. Um, I would say there's, uh, there's a variety of things you can do. Uh, I would start with what I think, especially in the Southeast is probably the least effective in that they have, they make these like dog vests. It, it almost might be like a vest you'd use like waterfowling, but they're like snake proof. Um, and, and they are snake proof, but one, we live in the Southeast. So a lot of different times of the year when we're out you know, hunting that, you know, it's so hot and to have this heavy duty vest on. And then again, the majority of your snake bites to dogs are going to come on the face, you know, or on the legs, a dog that gets bit in the body. It certainly has happened. Um, I think we actually went through a story where that happened on in that episode, the, the dog aversion training. Uh, But, but, you know, the vest is going to be heavy, hot, and and it's not going to, you know, protect against the majority of places that a dog could get a bite. Um, so there's also a vaccine, which we talk about on that podcast episode. Uh, and I won't go into great depth on it, but it's something you need to get. It's not a one-off vaccine, meaning you get it one time and, and your dog's good for the rest of its life. It's something that your dog needs to get uh, probably annually or maybe every two years. And then there are some mixed, uh, mixed results. Um, and then the final thing piece that, that, that I would mention is the snake aversion training, which is the, the focus of that podcast episode. And I think this is the most effective. And because what you're doing is you're empowering the dog to help itself using its most powerful tool being its nose. Mm-hmm. And so uh, dogs can discern just 
incredible levels of detail through their nose. And to give you an example, this is not snake aversion training. I will get to that, but uh, we do we do rare species surveys. So we were, we had dogs that were trained to go out and find this very rare snake species that was hard to find. And at the same time, we would train that exact same dog to avoid the venomous species that lived in the same ecosystems as this rare species. And so we, and, and it worked incredibly well, meaning we had a dog out on this landscape and the dog could tell the different species of snakes. I'm trying to find this one and I'm trying to avoid that one. So that gives you, uh, that gives you, to, lays the groundwork for snake aversion training in that, uh, it tells you that the dog can distinguish different types of snakes, for example, yeah. and then connect that. Um, <clears throat> and so again, you can, you can, well, I won't go into detail, but you can train your dog. You can have work with somebody to train your dog to avoid venomous snakes. And it can be incredibly effective. You might do a little bit of maintenance training here or there, like you do would do with any type of training, but I, I promote that. That is the most important thing. If you lived in Northern Minnesota and you're, uh, you know, or even if you live in the South, but the only time your dog is really in the field is you do a big two month long grouse and woodcock hunt up in the Northern Minnesota, then you probably don't need it. But, you know, if, if you're spending a lot of time in the quail woods, you know, you're waterfowl hunting and some of these blackwater sloughs and there's cottonmouths all around and, yeah. uh, you know, what, you know, you're, you're probably, that's probably your best tool is to, to explore the uh, snake aversion training. And you can just kind of get on the internet and start searching around and can learn a fair bit about it. And again, I'd encourage you to, if you Google snake talk podcast, snake aversion training, you'll find that episode and whole episodes about that topic with one of the experts in the country. Yeah, that was a good one. I very much like that, that episode. Um, yeah, I, I did find it. Here it is. This is it right here. It's, uh, let's see that. It's dog first aid. Yep. Dog first aid, a field guide. Published yeah. in 94. But I mean, it's, it just sits on my desk. I mean, I don't. Yeah. I think a first aid kit for a, a dog is good. I shouldn't have said throw out the first aid kit. If you have a snake bite kit, throw that out. <laughs> just like if you have a human snake bite kit, it has things like razor blades and like these suction devices and all yeah. that, just throw that away. That does absolutely nothing. It, it doesn't suck venom. It just sucks. So that's the same. <laughs> they do not help at all. It's yeah. you're helping people make money. That's what you're doing. Yeah. You purchase yeah, snake bite kits. Um, is there any, uh, you know, relationship that snakes have with deer, maybe fawns or, I mean, I, I, I had a trail cam video maybe two years ago of a buck uh, traveling down a creek and one of his hooves was just grossly swollen. He was, he was, he was favoring that. I don't know what happened to it, but I mean, you know, they have to, they have to have come in contact with each other. I was mm -hmm. uh, last week flew out, uh, out, out West and my wife did a little traveling and um I watched the special on PBS, I should say, it was originally aired on PBS. It was called My Life as a Turkey, I think. Um, mm -hmm. And it was this, you've seen it? Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I, I was not expecting what I mean. I thought it was great, <laughs> but I was not expecting, uh, you know, that story. But long story short, I, people should look it up. It's called "I Think My Life Is a Turkey," maybe an hour long. But I think it's a biologist in Florida, and, and I, I I missed the very beginning. But he comes. I think a farmer or someone brings in like seventeen turkey eggs. It was a lot. Uh, it was actually a lot more eggs than I don't know. Anyways, he ended up incubating them, hatching them. And what he learned by spending pretty much every single day with the turkeys for a couple for a year or two was that they were they would act, if I have it right, they would actively like not seek out, but they would confront snakes and almost like shoo them off, especially the rattlesnakes. Yeah. Um, is that something that's pretty common with turkeys and other wild game deer maybe? Well, the first thing I'd say is those large, primarily ground dwelling birds, you know, are, are kind of built for that. You know, their mm-hmm. legs are, are, uh, are relatively armored up and, and, and they're, they're not full of a lot of material that, that where blood flows, meaning, yeah. I mean, obviously, blood flows to a turkey's foot but there's a lot of hard dense material in there that doesn't have blood flowing through it unlike your calf which is full of blood and mm-hmm. all of that and so they are somewhat protected uh and and those types of of ground birds are a lot of them say like in the rainforests as well some of these wetland birds you know they actually do a fair amount of snake eating and and turkeys would be the same way turkeys eat snakes uh, so yeah, I think that, uh, I think that's probably, you know, that observation, you know, or, or from that, you know, show you're talking about, you know, probably happens quite a bit in nature. I mean, I don't know exactly, but I would have to think that. And then the other thing is that from the rattlesnakes perspective, you also have to think, and, and I'll get to the deer here in a second, but this will even be magnified when we go from a turkey to a deer, we all, as hunters, you know, we go out in the woods and like if you, a lot of people see a rattlesnake, they're terrified, but you have to think about it from the snake's perspective. It'd be like if you were sitting in the woods and a woolly mammoth walked up to you. I mean, we are huge and, and even a turkey is huge. My point being that the, the snake is not, you know, there's not a lot of advantage in the, a snake, a rattlesnake trying to battle a adult turkey they might be trying to eat some of the poults which i think yeah. would be very rare um and then the same thing with a with a deer and uh and so yes it wouldn't surprise me if at some point you know on a rare occasion a rattlesnake bites a uh you know bites a deer in the leg but again less less so than a turkey but even a deer's leg as you get that far down really you're talking about the deer's foot you know, that length of the lower leg where the rattlesnake would be hitting. Again, there's not as much tissue in there that's like transporting blood and would transport venom. So they are somewhat armored. I would also say that, that for, well, one important thing here is that rattlesnake venom is not for defense. That's not its purpose in nature. There are other types of animals in the world and their venom is built for defense, like a, uh, like a Gila monster, which is like a venomous lizard. Like they don't use their venom for feeding. 
It's a defensive venom. It's to prevent predators from killing them. But rattlesnakes, their venom is not their defense. You know, so it's actually would be disadvantageous for them to bite a deer in the leg. They could potentially use up their venom, uh, you know, for a time being. But anyways, their venom is is very specifically used for feeding. Um, And if we were going to draw... Well, and the other thing I would say, one last piece, and then I'll, I'll wrap that up by trying to pull all three of those species together. Um, if, if we were uh, going to, to, well, let me just finish with that because I'm, I'm kind of rambling on here, which I can do. But I would pull all three of those species together, being a rattlesnake, a deer, and a turkey, and say that how I think they link most tightly together comes back to this idea of conservation comes back to the idea of habitat comes back to all of these things we can talk about instances we can talk about instances of a snake eating a turkey egg we can talk about instances of a snake striking a deer in the leg but those are such rare you know, events. The, the really interesting thing here is that all of them are linked together by something much bigger, and that's managing and maintaining habitat where all of them would thrive. You know, so if you have a landscape that you're managing and, and it's good for the turkeys and it's good for the deer and it's good for the rattlesnakes. And then when you do that, when you have these functioning ecosystems, it doesn't matter if once every five years a deer gets killed by a rattlesnake or, you know, you again, going back to the turkey example with the turkey eggs. So that's how I think of the most important connection there. Some of these other events are interesting, but they're kind of one off. And in my mind, they don't, they don't necessarily impact, you know, especially the deer and the rattlesnake we just talked about, like it wouldn't have any impact on the population of deer or the population of rattlesnakes. So it's, to me, it'd be such a rare event, but I wouldn't rule it out from happening. That deer that you saw very, very well may have been bitten in the leg. I'm not sure. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I agree with a lot of what you, what you said. I mean, I, you know, a lot of people want to manage for predators, but reality is, is that you need predators on a landscape. I mean, just like what you said, you need all wildlife to thrive. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it's, you, you know, there's a place for predators. Uh, and then, you know, if you were to pursue one predator, raccoons or possums or both, and you went after them hard year round, all you're going to do is just open the door for something else. I mean, something else mm-hmm. is going to fill the void more than likely. So, you know, it's, that's why I always kind of go back and work, work on the habitat. I mean, you know, predators are here for a reason, um, just like coyotes. I mean, I know, you know, you know, when someone sees a new trail cam photo of a, of a coyote, you know, with a fawn in its mouth or killing a big buck, it's like, oh my, you know, my God, they're, they're killing a deer. But, you know, reality is a fawn could have already been dead. Uh, I mean, uh, I mean, fawn mortality is high, has always been high, and I'm not saying we should promote coyotes or, like, try to attract them or breed them, but, you know, I mean, they're here in the landscape, just like most other predators, and, you know, you can manage for them, but at the same time as you need predators, you also have to be mindful if you remove one or drastically remove one, what is that going to do? 
because it's going to do something. Yeah. Um, and I guess my point there is not so much, I mean, again, managing four predators. I, I don't want people to have the wrong idea. I mean, I certainly, you know, we, we do predator work um, for a variety of species, including turtles. Turtles are yeah. just like you think of a ground nesting bird. We do predator work to protect turtles. And I guess what I was trying to say, linking the turkey and the deer and the rattlesnake is that you know, if you're out there and you're managing the land for the rattlesnake, it doesn't mean your rattlesnake populations, you're managing to have these explosive populations, but if you're just managing the land for the rattlesnakes, you're also managing it for the deer and the turkeys in many cases. And, you know, and, and when I say manage for them, it may actually be a reduction in, in the numbers, you know, take that rat snake example. If you're managing the habitat well for rat snakes, you know, their numbers are probably going to go down from what they would do be in many situations, because again, they're one of the snakes that is often kind of subsidized by human activities. So. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, there's a lot to definitely think about. All right. So what I'd like to do is switch gears a little bit and talk about your deer hunting. Um, you mentioned earlier that you spent a lot of time out in the woods hunting for turkey and deer. Um, but you hunt in a different area of the Southeast that uh, I'm not familiar with. South Appalachian Mountains, can you talk a little bit about how you hunt, what you like to do? Yeah, so uh, as I mentioned, I live, uh, you know, I, I enjoy hunting anywhere. I have a deer camp in South Georgia, as I think we mentioned, and I'll go hunt there. And But what really excites me, um, really anywhere across the country is kind of big woods or or backcountry whitetail hunting. So, you know, I'll go up snow tracking in the North or, you know, hit, hit big forest service blocks in the Appalachians. Um, but honing in on that, you know, I live in the Southern Appalachians here. Again, I live in Georgia, right where Georgia, North Carolina and South Carolina come together. And I, uh, I just really enjoy that type of hunting. And, and I will say, you know, kind of before we get into it, it's definitely not for everyone. Uh, and I do enjoy being able to go down to maybe more productive areas. You know, it's hunting deer in a, in a very wild, dramatic landscape and the deer populations are, are much, much lower. And so it's, it's a whole different uh, type of hunting, but I really enjoy the challenge of it and just, you know, some of that imagery, like, you know, just this big mountain buck kind of like monarch of, of its world. And, and I just really enjoy trying to outsmart those deer that, you know, that, that are very hard to find. So. So when you're hunting in that type of scenario, big woods, what is your typical setup? I mean, and you can go, uh, you can break it down throughout the season, maybe early season, brought hunting in the season, but, you know, for instance, uh, when our season opens up in South Carolina, um, early season, they're still in bachelor groups before pre-rut. Mm -hmm. I'll concentrate more so on morning hunts um, because we can't, for the first month, we can't shoot does, we don't shoot bucks. So how I hunt is in, in the early season was hot. I'll concentrate on morning hunts and trying to, pinpoint where they're feeding at night and then where they're bedding mm -hmm. and trying to cut off the bucks in the morning time as opposed to the evening. Sometimes in the evenings, I just, 
it's, I mean, you're going to see every deer before you see that, before you see that big buck and we can't shoot those that early because they're still, um, you know, uh, fawns are still weeding. And then of course, during the rut, di di different, you know, different, different scenarios. You can talk a little bit about type of scenarios like, you know, breaking it down, nuts and bolts, as far as, uh -huh. you know, bedding, food source, acorns, what are you looking for? Yeah. So the first thing I would say is that even pre, so acorns are very important. I mean, that, that's the primary food source up here. You have acorns and then you have, you know, various types of browse, but um, there's actually a fair lack of management in, in, you know, our public land in the mountains. And so, you know, even the natural disturbance regimes of old are not even being simulated. We're, we're basically turning into an old growth forest. What that means is that the deer and the turkeys and the bears and everything are, are highly dependent on the acorns. So I will say that in the summer, I also spend a lot of time in the woods, both fishing and then, you know, looking for rattlesnakes in the summer. And, and I also spend a lot of time looking up in the trees with binoculars and looking at the acorn crop because it can vary. And so we start to get an understanding of that again, late summer, because that pattern is very important. There could be a lot of acorns everywhere. There could only be acorns high. They could only be low. They could be just overall there, there could be very few acorns. They could be really patchy. So starting to, starting to get an understanding of that acorn crop. And then I will say a lot of what you just talked about, that has no bearing on my hunting season. I don't even hunt deer. I only hunt mountain deer as we approach the rut. And so I won't go into yeah. great depth unless you wanted to, but I start my season in September bear hunting because in general, so our ruts in this part of the world are, are, you know, if I had to pinpoint like a peak rut date, it'd be like the first week of December um, mm -hmm. up here. So we have a late rut. And then, so in general, in the mountains, our deer hunting, I don't know if I want to say the deer hunting, but let's just say your chances of sighting a mature buck are going to go up throughout the deer season. And bear hunting is the opposite. Bear hunting is at its best on average at the beginning of the season. And then the quality of that goes down. So how I structure my big game seasons in the South is I typically start with bear hunting and I'm hunting bears into about, um, into about mid, you know, maybe third week of October. Mm -hmm. um, and then from there, I actually transition and I go down and hunt South Georgia. So I'm, I'm heading into the pre-rut and then hunting into the November. And then I start hunting mountain deer, maybe about mid-November, a couple weeks before that, that peak rut. And what that, the reason is, is that I cannot stress enough, but the deer densities are so low in the mountains. And, and when I say mountains, I hunt some of the highest mountains. You know, we're talking mm -hmm. three to 5,000 plus feet. And, and so deer densities are really, really low. And so like you talked about, when these groups are, when the, these bachelor groups are together and you're standing there in front of you, there's 30,000 acres of national forest. All the deer are together in one place. They're, you know, not that active, probably uh, daylight or at least moving extensively during daylight. It, it, I found it near impossible. And so I don't get me wrong. I know it can be done. I know some guys who do it. Um, 
so I end up focusing on bears because that's the time of year where I stand a, a, a good chance of harvesting a bear. Don't get me wrong. If I'm a bear hunting and a giant buck comes out, I would kill it, but I'm using tactics for bear hunting. And mm-hmm. then similarly in the mountains, as we get into late fall, I'm using deer tactics, but I, if a bear came by, I certainly might kill that as well. So, um, so in terms of the timing, I do not start like real focused um, hunting of mountain deer until mid-November, typically. Gotcha. Um, it's, it's pretty much public land. I prime, yeah, primarily. I mean, I do, you know, I have my own land that yeah. that abuts uh, mountain land that abuts public land. But yeah, I'm mostly hunting public land, and and the the deer densities are nowhere near. Um, as I've already mentioned, they're just really, really low. And so I use that acorn pattern to inform how I search. And probably the most important part of mountain deer hunting in the way that the way that I do it, and, and there's a group of us that do this, is to find what you would think of as some of your classic buck sign. And, and you know, people are going to be like, oh, this is not rocket science. You're, you're hunting deer, so you go look for buck sign. But there's a big difference um, as compared to, like, say, where I hunt in South Georgia. Like, there might be, like, little pockets here and there where there's more sign. But generally, across these thousands of acres that I hunt in South Georgia, there's, there's buck sign everywhere. And, and don't get me wrong, you can use that to hunt. But, yeah. but, I mean, you literally up in these mountains, you can spend hours walking, and you might not see a single rub. You might not see a single scrape. And so we look for what I call buck pockets, which are these really um, intense pockets uh, of buck sign. And it can be really hard to find those. Some of those might be miles back in the mountains. Um, and, And so we're trying to find those pockets. And then once we find those pockets, we might use uh, what you would think of as more, you know, traditional techniques, you know, I'll end up, you know, I'll do all day sits, I'll hunt funnels and pinch points. Uh, if the weather's good, I'll, I'll do a fair amount of, of still hunting. If we get snow, I'll do tracking. Uh, so I'll use a variety of techniques, but the, but the success largely hinges on finding those concentrations of buck sign, which again, doesn't sound like rocket science, but they're, they're not everywhere up here. Right. They're, yeah. they're few and far between. And you, and you, uh, you know, you need to find those. I used to use, once I found those, I'd use cameras. I don't use cameras anymore, but I used to, to, to really kind of, you know, I'd be checking different buck pockets to see what was there. Uh, so, so finding these low density pockets where, where there are a concentration of, of, of big buck sign, uh, and then hunting that in a variety of ways. That's kind of the beginning of the strategy that we've used. And if you do that, this group of people that, that I'm with are all very successful mountain deer hunters, you know, we'll usually get maybe two, maybe three in a good month of hunting the mountains opportunities at, at we'll just say like a three and a half or at least three and a half or four and a half year old deer. So, but, but it takes a lot of energy and a lot of effort hunting yeah. almost daily. Um, it's not for everybody. The mountains are exciting, but you have to want, you want to have to like really embrace 
of really you know embrace the stock as, as you hear some people say i mean it, it, the terrain's difficult the deer densities are low uh, you can shoot big deer but on average your your antler sizes are probably going to be a little smaller than mm -hmm. you know heavily managed property in the coastal plain for example uh, so you have to want it. You have to want to be hunting that, like the, the concept of hunting those big woods and those big mountains have to be a big driver for why you come do it. But uh, it can be done, even though the deer densities are quite, quite low. Yeah. Sounds like that's what separates, you know, the hardcore hunters that really know how to get out and hunt the deer from those that, um, you know, just kind of casually, you know, just kind of casually hunt. Yeah. Um, you think the low numbers are just a product of the environment, um, the habitat, um, or is it just, is there a lack of, uh, you know, thickets from, you know, you think it's more like, a, you know, lower fawn recruitment because of low, you know, I have read a lot of some different studies and maybe some, you know, public land, maybe it's, uh, you know, a military base, maybe they don't do much burning or, or maybe it's more open, it's more open woods. And they just, you know, there's one military base. I can't think where, I can't think where it is. I think it's in Georgia, but there was a, you know, a coyote predation study mm -hmm. and it was extremely high uh, fawn mortality from predators, but it was a lot of big woods and they didn't burn much. It was just mm -hmm. very open. Yeah, I mean, I can, we, we know a lot of this science and uh, the issue, the reason that we do not have larger populations of deer and probably, you know, larger antlers on average is, is an, incorporates multiple things that you, that you just talked about. One, we probably more so than any forest service area that I can think of in the country our national forests are like playgrounds for people who don't live in the area. Meaning like you got people from, and this is great. I'm not knocking this again, but you know, people from Atlanta, this is like the Chattahoochee national forest where I live is Atlanta's playground. People from Florida coming up, you know, the same in North Carolina, you got people from the coast coming West into the Nantahill and the Pisgah. And so which is great. It drives a lot of the economy, but it also brings some very interesting ideals into how the land is managed, how the public land is managed. And, and I won't go through all of it in depth, but what it's resulted in is something I mentioned earlier. It's resulted in a forest that is largely almost completely old growth forest. So large oak hickory forests, very, very little early successional habitat. And so you take somebody who doesn't understand that there historically there were natural disturbance regimes, meaning fire, beaver, bison, elk, ice storms, all these things that used to shape these forests and basically create young forests in the mountains. A lot of those natural things are gone or have changed. And so so you take out the natural and, and then you have this push by the public, which again is primarily from the outside. And I completely understand why they're doing this, but you know, they, they, they see a fire, they see a logging cut, you know, something like that is this, oh, this is awful thing. But the truth is, is, is we need more of that 
to increase our biodiversity, to conserve everything from the deer to the snakes. And so uh, it's, uh, you know, basically we have this like even aged old growth forest. So you start there and deer, as you know, they, they love thick. There still is thick up here. I will say we do have mountain laurel and rhododendron thickets that can be really expansive and the deer will use those for cover. Um, but they don't, and they will eat those too, but it's horrible, you know, nutritionally. But what they're lacking are those young forests and all that browse and food, you know, in addition to the cover. So they're lacking that. And then you layer in uh, the predation issue. So bears, more so than deer, are very much generalists. We all know this. They're omnivores. They, you know, you can put a black bear in Alaska and it'll be eating salmon and then switching over to some type of berry. You can have a black bear here and it's eating skunk cabbage and then it's transitioning to acorns. They're just a generalist animal. They do really well. And uh, now we have this, you know, coyote, which is, you know, this interesting animal that, that never occurred here historically. It's, you could argue it's filling a niche of an animal that used to occur here. Um, I don't have anything against coyotes. I think they're kind of cool, but, uh, but still, so you have these animals, you have bobcats as well. And all three of those um, on mountain deer play a very significant role, especially like you mentioned during fawning. And there, there are studies going on right now in the Chattahoochee National Forest that are showing almost every fawn that hits the ground. So let's, I'm just, these are hypothetical numbers, but it, they're somewhere in line with this. Let's just say 30 fawns hit the ground that the researchers knew about 28 or 29 of them died. And 80% of those deaths were predations by bears who again are generalists who are doing okay in this old growth forest. Um, so you have very low recruitment, very similar problem to turkeys. Um, and you could fix all of it by getting, we have to do it ourselves by managing the forest, but we need to manage our national forests more. I'm not saying I love wilderness areas. I mean, I'm not, I'm, I'm the guy here like preaching, saving turtles. Right. And so like, I'm all about wilderness areas. I'm all about old growth forests, but like, I'm not about everything being that we need a diversity of different seral stages or different age forests in these mountains that at least somewhat simulate what we had historically. And then kind of like I was talking about pulling these ecosystems together and fire down in the longleaf, if you can simulate some of that up here, overall, you're gonna have a much healthier ecosystem. You're gonna have more turkeys, you're gonna have more deers, you're gonna have more snakes. And Hey, Chris, you there? I'm back. I did the same thing, signed out because you because you froze. So yeah, uh, I, 
you're gonna you're gonna have fun editing this one huh <laughs> I, I took my video uh off i don't yeah i can sh shut mine off as well Just, i think um i've we're on xfinity comcast i'm at my house and we're not in a bad cell area but every now and then our wi-fi just goes it just gets bad and and i yeah. um and i've got to do this is the first time it's happening during recording which is really annoying but um actually i had it happen one time and it was the very end and i was wrapping up um I was actually wrapping up recording in it and it froze, but everything's saved. So yeah. Um, so this, this, sh this shows that we're recording right now still, at least on my screen. Yeah. So um, it's still recording. Um, and I know you were, I don't know. I don't know where it's going to end on that, on that last prop me probably when it froze. Yeah, I mean, I, um, I, I, did you hear me? Cause you, I don't, when you freeze, I don't know if you could hear me, but I, when I noticed it was frozen, I was kind of like ending that whole yeah. topic okay. of conversation. So I don't know, you might have lost a bunch of it or you might not have, but, you know, basically I was just kind of wrapping up that whole concept that, you know, these Appalachian forests, you know, are no longer healthy because you've got well meaning people, um, you know, who are coming in and, they just think any fire, any logging is bad. And um, which is not the case from an ecological perspective. You're right. And, and, and that's some of the, um, that's some of the issues that I know we're dealing with. Um, with some of these, on these four service lands, it, it, it's just the, is the management side to it. And then you get a lot of different people that have different opinions and voices and ideas as far as what, what they want to see, you know, what they want to see and what they want to, uh, you know, outcomes of landscape, but they don't maybe necessarily know the right ways of achieving that. Uh, like what you said, diversity, um, you know, you, you don't, you don't, of course, you don't want a monoculture um, of land and you, and you need that good diversity. So, um, exactly. Yeah. You should see, uh, you know, I go to all these, these forest service, uh, meetings, you know, that, you know, talk about planning in the forest and, and all of that. And the first thing I would say is that the forest service itself generally has some really good people who are really interested in managing for a healthy, diverse forest, but oftentimes they, their hands get somewhat tied. So I'm not trying to blame a lot on the the forest service necessarily because they're doing what we tell them to do or what we will and won't let them to do do but you go into some of these like forest planning meetings and i mean it's lively you'd think you're at like a, a spotted owl logging meeting in the pacific northwest back in like the 90s or something i mean it's it's like heated and people are like you know talking about fire and logging and it's just uh just very uh, emotion driven as opposed to being driven by science it can be a little frustrating from my perspective so i'm sure it can yeah absolutely i'm sure it can be very frustrating coming from a you know scientific research background like yourself well let's start to um wrap this up um one question stands out have you ever been bitten by a snake 
I have, I, well, I have been bitten a ball. So let me back up. I have never had venom injected into me by a venomous snake. I've been bitten by many, many non-venomous snakes. And I have almost been bitten multiple times by venomous snakes because I've handled, I've handled tens of thousands of venomous snakes. It's wow. just, I mean, I handled some today. And so, um, and then I did have one strike me and hit me in the lower leg, but I was wearing a pair of snake gaiters and the snake gaiters stopped. I actually got a really cool picture where you can see on the snake gaiters kind of like the two, you know, side by side areas that are like wet. You can just see drops of venom side by side dripping down. It's pretty cool. Yeah, that that, that is. And so my, my follow up question is, I primarily wear uh, rubber boots, just regular lacrosse, uninsulated rubber boots. Um, you know, go about calf high. I don't know if it's 18 inches or however tall it is, year round. Is that, and I know they're not designed for snake protection, but it, I mean, is would a venom uh, mistake just go right through that? Uh, so, first of all, I wear those as well, especially doing like, snow tracking up north yeah. but um but you know not worried about snakes when i do that either but um uh so i would say it's it's better than you know wearing shorts and, and getting bit in the leg but no they are not built to could help you could have a snake and for some reason the angle it just doesn't quite get through the rubber it gets hung up in the rubber um it's better than than nothing um, it's just another layer, like wearing pants is better than shorts. Like a snake yeah. could get its fangs hung up in your shorts, but they are not built to, um, be snake proof. If people want to, um, want the most like lightweight, easy to deal with snake protection for their legs. Um, first of all, you've probably seen a lot of snake boots. I hate them. They're these big clunky things. They yep. look like plantation wear, like you should be you know, wearing them down like Thomasville on a quail hunt and, you know, you're going to have tea at, you know, 10 o'clock or I've, I've done that stuff too. I really enjoy quail hunting down to Thomasville, but, um, but, you know, they're, they're just, they're not real functional for, for, you know, hunting on these bigger landscapes and a lot of deer hunting where you're moving a lot, and, you know, maybe you're in the mountains or you're in the swamps and they're just not functional. So anyways, there are these, there's this brand, that have been really hard to get since we've we've hit these supply chain issues we're we're facing here but um they're called turtle skins and they're very lightweight they're uh they're almost like regular gators like you see these western big game hunters that wear like gators when they're out you know in the back country of montana uh they almost they're like that weight and and you know so they've won they they just help you with brush anyways um but i bring them everywhere you know i mean i've i've flown them you know, I roll them up into a backpack and I'll, you know, we've done work back in the Frank church. I mentioned that earlier, this really, really wild part of the Rocky mountains. And, you know, I'll roll them up and keep them in my backpack as I'm in the back country and take them out. I've had them, you know, fly them down, keep them in my backpack in the Amazon and other places I've been just, you know, some of the more wild places that are very convenient. They roll up into a ball, but they are snake proof. They're, they're the pair I was wearing when the snake bit me in the leg. Uh, so again, turtle skins, that's a, that's a good, you know, a good brand of snake gator. If you want something that's lightweight, uh, something that can be 
throw in your backpack and take up relatively little room, all that stuff. That's good to know. And I, that's why, that's why I asked the question because I, you know, it, it's funny exactly what you said about snake boots. That's why I don't wear them anymore. I, I don't, I think I got, I think I threw out my last pair of snake boots, maybe 2007. They, they, they just got, I mean, I, I used to wear them all the time, but they, they're just, they're so hot. I mean, they're much hotter than those rubber boots I just described. And I wear those rubber boots even like right now during the summer, yep. uh, throughout yep. the season. They just snake boots are hotter. They don't breathe. They're just clunky. Yep. They're also loud. Uh, I mean, I can, I can slip around in those uninsulated rubber boots very quietly. Um, so that's why I, I will definitely check out turtle skins. Um, all right, um, I'm gonna wrap this up. I asked you three questions that I ask everybody, every guest. Um, Shoot. We'll work through these. First question is, do you have a book recommendation? Um, kind of wildlife book, conservation, anything that uh, you can recommend to people out there to check out? I, I would do, I'll do two, one on the, uh, conservation side one more purely on the hunting side yeah. so the conservation wise i think everybody needs to read the sand county almanac by aldo leopold and uh probably some of your other guests have mentioned that but it's a if you're not reading that once a year uh you know you just should be it's it's important um and then the other one from a hunting perspective for a whitetail crowd in the southeast just because wherever we hunt live we get tunnel vision I would encourage people to read a little bit about these northern, these like backwoods, northwoods hunters that you picture wearing like the plaid and all that. Mainly, they're mostly snow tracking. Yeah. But they're, they're incredible woodsmen. And, and I think uh, we have a lot of great woodsmen down here too. But, um, but I think there's room for more woodsmanship uh, in our southeastern whitetail hunting. So I guess I would recommend really a book or a podcast, anything by, um, I guess I'll throw out Hal Blood. He's a, he's a guy up in Maine. And, uh, yeah. he, you know, I, I look at some of his content uh, and the woodsmanship that goes into that style of hunting. It'll, it'll help you down here. Yeah, I have, I have li I've listened to him on a podcast and I don't want to throw out any podcast names because I'm not I'm so sure which one I, I, I've heard him on, but I, but I had, yeah, I, I, I think it's a, that's a tremendous idea. And even though uh, that, you know, you know, how blood or anybody else might not hunt where you do when you're hunting big woods, like what you describe where you hunt or in the Northeast, there's a lot of things that there's a lot of correlations, even though the terrain, it might not all be the same elevation, same terrain. There's a lot of things that deer, a lot of similarities and, and there's some different things you can pick up on. I mean, I always preach about, and, and, and what a big turning point for me was as a hunter was when I got off our permanent stands and started hunting more mobily. And I spent, a, spent pretty much an entire season hunting mobily. Yep. And, you know, at first, you know, some, you might not see the same amount of deer, but then once you start, and it, it can happen so quickly, once you start to learn the natural movements of deer, and you get off, you know, I mean, you can still hunt around the food plots in, in ag fields. And I, and I hunt them, but I don't hunt on them. You start to learn how they move, 
what they do, what they're feeding on first before, I mean, you know, because they're probably not going that food plot first. They're going to feed their way from where they're coming from. I think it's a, I think it's a tremendous idea. I like that uh, suggestion. All right, the second question is, what is your favorite? Um, or what's just a go-to wild game dish uh, or type of wild game that is just an all-time favorite for you? Uh, I would say that my all-time favorite game meat in general uh, is uh, bear meat. And uh, I like to uh, I like to do a couple of things. I like to render down all the fat and then I use the bear grease to, to cook most anything with. But my favorite way to eat bear meat is to kind of, you know, actually it's what I'm having for dinner tonight nice. uh, is, is uh, I'll slow cook. I'll slow cook the bear meat and, and I'll build kind of different flavor profiles in the, in the liquid that I'm slow cooking it in like a crock pot. And then I will, uh, I'll make bear tacos and, and, you know, just, just try to get creative with, with how I, how I build those tacos up with some of the other things, but I'd say bear meat's my favorite game meat. And I love to have a bear meat taco and that's what I'll be eating in a couple hours. So. That sounds awesome. Okay. So I, I got two follow-up questions with that. One First is, can you describe, I've never had bear meat. I would imagine a lot of people that are listening have not. Can you describe what it would, the meat, what it would compare to as far as other wild game or beef or venison? And then secondly, what time should people come over tonight for dinner? For those topics? <laughs> uh, yeah, so first thing I'd say is that bear meat is the closest game meat that I've had in North America and I've eaten most everything. It's the closest thing to beef in that uh, it has the fat is more interspersed into the muscle. Whereas, you know, as you get into a lot of the different deer species, whether it be deer or moose or elk, you know, their fat is external to the muscle primarily. Um, So bear meat is much fattier and and it has that perception like, oh, like it's greasy and all that, but that grease is just great. That's where a lot of that flavor is in the fat. So the one thing I will say about bear meat though, is it because you're eating more of the fat, it's so dependent on, uh, on what the bear eats. So when you're here in the Southern Appalachians and you know, you're, you're killing a bear and that's primarily eating acorns. I mean, it's fabulous. You know, if you go kill a black bear, that's been feeding on salmon for two months in coastal Alaska, it's probably going to taste awful. So, but, uh, but it is, it's like a fatty, um, beef like meat more so than venison it's it's again just my favorite and then as i mentioned you know i render down all the fat if i get a nice fat bear and and i i cook all that down and then i take the i take the oil that you finish Mm -hmm. with and i bottle that all up and then we use that as our cooking oil all year i mean you put it in a cake for your daughter's birthday i mean it's it's fabulous you know saute up different things in it and then you can even eat those those leftover they're like pork rinds. Like when you finish, when you finish getting the oil out of that, you end up with these little like bear pork rinds or bear cracklings. Um, those are great to eat too. That sounds, yeah, that that's, that's on a bucket list to hunt bear and, and, and try some meat. So the fat is the fat more of more like beef fat as opposed to, you know, you know, deer fat is just yeah, so deer fat, as you probably know, you've probably had it cooked some box. It kind of has this real waxy, yeah. like tallowy, like stick to the roof of your mouth. 
no, bear fat's great. Like, you know, if I've got a big old leftover, you know, most of the fat, again, I cut off and then I, you know, I render down, but, but the, you know, say there's a little hunk of fat on the meat, you know, I'm not cutting that off. That's just, I'm just eating that. I mean, it's, yeah. it's yeah. really good. So. Yeah. That's good. That's that. That is good to know. I, I, you know, a lot of people rave about bear meat and then when you get a, you look back historically as far as, you know, what, what we, you know, what we used to eat as, as a society in the country, as far as bear meat compared to other game, it's, I mean, that was a very much a preferred meat. Um, last exactly. question, what in your opinion, not that, you know, you know, not we're going to hold you to it, but what do you think is one of the more, uh, more important conservation topics issues in the southeast right now i mean you know what i focus on with southeast whitetail is really kind of three three pillars habitat conservation and venison uh you know then it, it's not all about whitetail uh venison I, I i think it's such a great renewable resource for people to utilize the meat um but you know conservation is a you know, a big reason why I'm doing this. So what do you, what do you think is, is, is maybe something that really should be on people's radar? I mean, it could be common knowledge. It might not people, people's radar, whether they own land, lease land, hunt public land, private land, whether they hunt or they're just like nature, like what you said, you know, there's a lot of people, they go to these national forests that maybe um, they don't hunt, but they just, you know, you know, uh, hike on camp or whatever what, what do you think right now is kind of a forefront people should know about conservation wise in the southeast yeah so i'm gonna I, i'm gonna speak very specifically but but more generally i will say that um one the appalachian forest management issue i won't talk about that anymore but that's one of the biggest issues that people need to get involved in because uh you know we're getting steamrolled uh and our forests are paying the price as well as our deer. Uh, the other thing we've mentioned it multiple times in different ways, uh, turkey populations in the Southeast. So I'm hugely involved in that. I've been involved, uh, not just from a, you know, voting perspective or putting in my, you know, my two cents, but, you know, through working through conservation organizations, uh, whether it be the regulation issues in some of the Southeastern states, whether it be habitat issues, predator issues, been very involved in that. But I want to focus in on uh, public land. And most of our southeastern states have a very small amount of public land as compared to many of the western states. So here in Georgia, we've got about 10% of the state. We're the largest state east of Mississippi, but only 10% of its public land. And, uh, and We've been creating new public land, as I mentioned, Orient Site has been doing that with a lot of partners. We need to maintain the public land that we have, and we need to maintain our access as hunters and anglers to that public land. And we have a really big issue right now that is happening in the state of Georgia that I would love every one of your listeners uh, to get on and sign a, a petition that we have. And so there's a, a WMA, Wildlife Management Area in Georgia, called Pine Log. Uh, it's about an hour north of Atlanta. It's kind of in the foothills of, of the Appalachians. We've got bears, we've got 
turkeys, deer, squirrel hunting. We have, uh, you know, one of the heavily stocked trout streams. So it provides that kind of stalker uh, trout fishing opportunity that's so great to bring your kids to. And there's also native red-eye bass, these like foothill uh, mountain bass species. Uh, and again, it's an hour from Atlanta. And you might be like, well, I don't live in Atlanta, but let's say you live two hours from Atlanta. All those people who used to go there are going to be coming to your place. But, but my point is, is we're about to lose that. And uh, what's happened is that Georgia DNR actually leases the ground. They don't own the ground. And the landowner has decided that they're going to sell the property. And we, being uh, backcountry hunters and anglers, uh, the Georgia chapter in, uh, specifically is working really hard right now to, uh, to get the governor to purchase this property. We have an active petition that I'd love all of your listeners to get on. Maybe I can uh, give you the, uh, give you the uh, link, Mark, and, and you could link right to that um, in the show notes. But uh, we need hunters and anglers and everybody to get out there and protect this public land. We already have a small amount of it. We have a growing population. We're one of the fastest growing human populations region-wise in the country, both us and the West. Uh, We're going to need places to hunt and fish. And so we cannot be losing hunting ground you know, at the scale of tens of thousands of acres in one shot. So, so anyways, we as hunters and anglers, we need to, we need to be heard. And one good way to do that is to sign this BHA petition, urging the governor and the commissioner to authorize the purchase of that land. So it will be forever a a place that, that we can all go with our kids and our grandkids and, and enjoy, you know, everything that's, that's beautiful about wildlife and hunting and fishing. That that's exactly what we should be focused on. I think in the southeast, I have seen that petition. I think maybe I saw it floating around uh, last week or the week before. Um, but I would like to get a link for that and put it on the show notes, like you said. Um, and that you know, fragmentation of our country, especially in the southeast, is a tremendous issue that I, I don't think people really understand you know what what we have right now and what we're what we you know lose from time to time um you know unless someone really you know hunts or fishes or hikes or utilizes public land or private land you know you might not realize that i mean our country is very much fragmented especially in the the southeast the northeast i mean just the east in in itself i mean it's a huge huge population and uh you know we have a lot of land here to hunt but at the same time in the southeast most of it's private and um and and you know it's a it's a it's a major it's a major issue and I'm glad you, I'm glad you brought that up. Um, Dr. Jenkins, I appreciate your time. Can you tell us where people can find you? Well, if you want to check out uh, Backcountry Hunters and Anglers, uh, we can be found at www.backcountryhunters.org. Uh, if you want to check out the Orient Society, you can go to www 
O-R-I-A-N-N-E.org. Um, and if you want to just kind of follow my uh, adventures, um, I, would, I would go to my Instagram. And I will say that my Instagram is dominated by two things. It's dominated by snakes and it's dominated by hunting. So I probably put out about as equal amount of content about snakes and then hunting and fishing. And uh, you can find me at Dr. C.L. Jenkins. So that's at D-R-C-L-J-E-N-K-I-N-S. Well, I appreciate your time. Um, thanks for being on. And um, I will put everything in the show notes, your website, link for this petition. Um, and BHA link, Backcountry Hunters and Anglers. If people aren't familiar with that group, they should be. Um, whether they, you know, whether you hunt primarily private land, that's that's stuff like that. I mean, stuff what like what Dr. Jenkins just 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 mentioned. Is that a WMA property right now? It is currently, okay, so, but we're, we're poised to lose it potentially. You know, I mean, you know, if someone's listening and they, and they hunt private land, they have access to private lands, that could be out of sight, out of mind for them. But, you know, things can change. And I've, and I've seen that most of my life. I mean, you, you might have, you might be in a hunting lease and, you know, things change. You might start to better the habitat. You might start to grow big giant deer or, or have a turkey population. All of a sudden landowner, you know, wants the hunting rights for himself or a son, or maybe he sells, or maybe it's more land fragmentation and they develop it. Uh, or maybe one day things change and you, and you want to hunt public land. Maybe you want the challenge or maybe things change and you lost your access to private. Um, it, it's just, there's just so much wrapped up, you know, in it. Uh, people, you know, new hunters out there buying hunting licenses, hunting this property that we could lose uh, purchasing firearms and bow and archer equipment where there's taxation for Pittman Robinson Act, you know, going towards uh, conservation work. I mean, there, there's so much in it that if you're a hunter, if you're an angler, or you just like being outdoors to support um, what you can, there's so much important where it, it's beneficial to everyone. And you'll see benefits to yourself and to other hunters and anglers. So I would implore everyone to check that out. Check out Backcountry Hunters and Anglers. Check out the Orient, Orient Society, excuse me, and then check, check out uh, Dr. Chris Jenkins on Instagram. It's a very good follow. And check out his pod, podcast. Can you talk a little bit about the podcast? Yeah, Snake Talk. Anything uh, you ever wanted to learn about, about snakes? We've got a whole variety of episodes. Uh, just to give you an example, I already mentioned kind of the treating human snake bite, but we've got a whole episode just on copperheads, where all we do is we just talk about, like, what are copperheads? What do they do? You know, their ecology, their natural history. This is one of the venomous snakes that, that people see most in the United States, but we know next to nothing about them. I talked to the, the world expert. Uh, research scientist on copperheads as an example and then we everything from snake handling churches to uh you know to avoidance training with dogs as we talked about to timber rattlesnakes 
uh, last the last episode was actually on Gila monsters, this this venomous lizard in the southwest. So yeah, check out Snake Talk. Uh, there might be some episodes in there that interest you. Absolutely, yeah. I, I would I would uh, challenge everyone give it a listen. Um, you know, if you're out there, whether you're hunting, fishing, or hiking, um, you chances are you're going to come across a snake, especially in the southeast. So you need to know. You ought to know a little bit about what you're looking at. You know what, what's the you know what are the danger ones to to avoid. So, yeah. Dr. Jenkins, let me I pre- let, let me plug one more episode because it just hit me. Then, and your Do listeners it. probably branched in this. So, we did an episode. So, the very one state, Pennsylvania, uh, they had a declining timber rattlesnake population, and they took a very interesting approach to conserving the species. They turned them into a game species. So if you buy your version of a, of a, like a sportsman's package in Pennsylvania, you know, where you get your bear tag and your deer tag and your, whatever it might be, your trout stamp and all these things you need to hunt and fish different things. If you do that in Pennsylvania, you get a rattlesnake tag and you can go out and legally harvest one rattlesnake per year. It has to be of a certain size. It has to be a male. It, it's managed just like deer are. You know, there's regulations around it. And uh, and you, I encourage everybody to, to listen to it because it's really a hunting story. It's just a story about regulated hunting of, of rattlesnakes and how that turned Pennsylvania into one of the strongholds for timber rattlesnakes in the country um, while having an active hunting program for them. So anyways, that'd be one that they should all be interested in, I would assume. Yeah. I, I, I did not know that, that 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 was a thing in Pennsylvania. That's interesting. Um, yeah. I, I've enjoyed, uh, I've enjoyed your podcast after, you know, our, we have a mutual friend Gunnar Hall after he uh, connected us. Uh, it's very good stuff. So well, with that, uh, is there anything else you want to mention? I'm good. I just wanted to thank you. I, uh, you know, it was, it's been nice to meet you, and I've enjoyed our conversation today. Well, I appreciate you being on. I, I, I greatly appreciate your time, and uh, I thought it was a very good episode because this covers we covered a lot of stuff that uh, I don't think a lot of people talk about, and uh, we we haven't talked about it before. So, thanks again for listening, and um, I'll see y'all again next week. Thanks, Dr. Jenkins. Thank you.